This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. As data science becomes increasingly important for business, hybrid science and engineering teams are a necessity. But managing these distinct types of experts for maximum collaboration is a compelling challenge. How can mixed teams maximize performance? In this episode, Ledge sits down with Vikas Martin, Director of Machine Learning, Engineering, and Data Science at Distillery, a custom audience solutions company that uses AI to find and target ideal customers. Vikas discusses how sometimes an organization might shy away from conflict, but it's a really effective tool if we put the time into the productive contention. Vikas also shares his personal experience moving from in-office management to fully remote. Vikas, good to have you. Hey, Ledge. Good to be here. Could you just give a two or three minute, you know, just an introduction of yourself um, and your work, you know, so the audience can get to know you a little bit? Sure. So I'm director of machine learning engineering at an applied data science company in New York City called Distillery. We focus on creating audiences for marketers to either reach new consumers or to engage with their existing uh, consumers. And we're very much AI driven. Uh, creating these audiences. So just everybody's throwing around machine learning AI these days, right? Like, so what does this actually mean for your, your day-to-day work and your team? You know, from uh, what, what are you doing when you build an audience? What mechanically, what is that? So we have these two kind of audiences, which is uh, like lookalike or actalike. So we might, for instance, look at some of your existing consumers. And once we identify them, what we would then uh, do is we would find other potential consumers uh, using machine learning techniques who either look similarly or act similarly online in terms of like their web browsing behavior. And before I hit record here off mic, you and I were, were talking a little bit about, you know, how you have to arrange and have worked on arranging data science and engineering together because you have to like sort of build that product, right? And and yet you still have to have this sort of R&D-based uh, science organization. And I wonder how have you guys put that together? I've had this conversation a few times and there doesn't seem to be consensus on like the exact right way to, to build that hybrid team. Everybody's fighting with this right now. So, you know, what, what has been successful for you guys? Yeah, I mean, we had a similar problem. I think we were very traditional in that we had completely separate data science and engineering departments, like data science being our research department. And, you know, the the researchers would um, come up with innovative new data-driven products, but they don't really have the means to put these ideas into production, right? And that's kind of hard. So we often had like, a temporary collaboration between data science and engineering that would be a little bit of a handoff. But it wasn't like close ongoing collaboration, okay? And that kind of hampered our efforts to to create some of these products. So what'd you do to, to get around that? I mean, did you, you know, sort of redesign the teams or what's the actual arrangement now? Yeah, we, we tried a few things. So initially what we had is we had this kind of almost a rotational thing where we took somebody from engineering and we kind of partnered them with data science for like two weeks at a time. And when they're done, somebody else from engineering would partner. And we found that didn't work really well because 
you don't build up like a common knowledge, like vocabulary, etc. So what we experimented with was to uh, take a few engineers and essentially embed them inside data science. So we created this new team that we called machine learning engineering. And it consisted not only of engineers, but also of data scientists. And the whole idea was that, you know, you take these people with kind of different skill sets, but complementary in some ways, and you give them a common goal. And what we found was over time, they kind of start talking each other's language, right? And we were actually able to create uh, different kinds of products than traditionally engineering were able to create by themselves. Give me some examples there. You know, how, how did that, that uh, cross-pollination of, of thinking work? You know, what, what, what was the success story there and maybe some of the challenges too? Yeah, so one example, I guess this was one of the earliest products we, we did was um, we wanted to kind of, within our platform, create a way of maximizing performance when we deliver to a particular audience but within certain constraints. So it's, it's, a, it's a mathematical problem, right? It's an optimization problem, not a typical engineering kind of thing you would tackle. So this collaboration result in something that the um, researchers proposed and then the machine learning engineers took this thing on. And there was a lot of like shouting, I would say almost, right? Negotiating how to best approach this thing because the thinking can be very different between these two groups. Like on the one hand, it is theoretical. This is the perfect solution. On the other hand, you have the reality of a production system, right? With all of its limitations. Um, and we went back and forth a few times, but the end result was that we created this thing that ended up being used on like 80% of our campaign. So it was a really big success for us. And so it was worth that... Um friendly debate, you know, or expensive debate. You know, I think, I think sometimes organizations shy away from that, you know, productive conflict, but uh, that seems like a good use case to say that was really effective. You know, if, if we put the time into those, you know, sort of expensive meetings and whiteboard sessions where it's like a little contentious, but it, it ends up with a better solution. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I think the contention is very good, right? You want people to push back against your ideas because at the end of the day, you end up with something that is a very good compromise satisfying everyone. You're one of the leaders there. So uh, I'm curious, you know, how, how did you break the log jams if they just become too cumbersome? You know, sometimes it's like, okay, y'all, we've been talking about this for, you know, five hours, you know, let's make a decision. Did you come to any moments like that? We did. So one of the first things we did was we created this process, which is just like a design document, a request for common document, because we found that sometimes the researchers would stand in front of the whiteboard. They would try and explain the maths. Um, sometimes you need to have a few of these sessions, and it, it's a little bit hard to get everyone on board if they don't have the same skill sets, and there's a little bit of the ramping up period. So we have these documents, uh, requests for common documents, and you pitch your idea and you share it. And everyone reviews this. We uh, kind of comment on this thing. We go back and forth a few times. And we find that it's a discovery process. It's a way to communicate. And um, it can go on for like a week, two weeks. But what we find at the end of the day, we have something that is a very good compromise that everyone understands, right? 
and that we agree is the best way forward. Yeah, I imagine, I mean, you know, in my own experience, I'm technically literate, you know, certainly not an engineer anymore. Uh, but, you know, some of the stuff coming out of machine learning and, and AI and data science is like, I just simply do not understand. Like, I don't have the background. Yet, I can say that when experts like yourself and, and other guests I've had on, you know, kind of explain it in a different language, like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I totally get it now. Um, and I, I've been around enough academics to know that, you know, academics like their own subdisciplinary vocabulary. And it's very hard to shake them out of and let's, let's hey, let's let's find a common language. You know, even if that's like distillery language, like let's just find a way to communicate about this together because we really are talking about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the domains are so very different. I mean, the skill sets are different. The tool chains are so different. Like our data scientists use a completely different ecosystem of tools than the engineers do. I mean, our engineers use tools like, uh, you know, Java and Groovy and, and the researchers use like this whole ecosystem of tools like TensorFlow and Scikit-Learn and, uh, you know, Pandas and Numpy, et cetera. So you come from very different places. And unless you are willing to take the time to kind of bridge that gap, things get lost in translation. Yeah, on both directions too. You know, it's, it's, when you get into, a, you know, a CICD tool chain and, you know, sort of like build management and release management and all those things, like they're not going to resonate with your data science types at all. No, because the workflows are so different. The mindsets are so different. Like researchers are very used to like posing a hypothesis, right? And then they want to run a bunch of experiments to test that. And they're used to... Uh, doing things in a quick experimental way. Um, and at the end of the day, they will, you know, write it up, uh, maybe publish a paper on it, and then they throw it all away. Whereas the engineers care about the quality of the code, right? They want to create things in a reproducible way. They want to write unit tests to make sure they don't break things. They want to be able to scale things. They want to make sure that it's robust. It can run 24-7. None of these things the researchers care about when they do their experiments. I would guess though that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, agile and lean and experimentation and sort of scientific experimentation actually forms a nice union between those two mindsets because you can say, you know, Hey, we, we want to implement and ship quickly. We want to fail fast. Uh, that is experimental in nature. Uh, and you might end up throwing some away. So, you know, it, the scientists are going to have to say, well, we're not going to throw it all away. We're going to keep some things and actually do some stuff. And the engineers are going to have to say, let's put some system systems around and processes around what we keep and what we throw away based on actual data. Scientists like data. You know, it seems like you could come to uh, a self-referential and sort of um, stasis there that, that actually does make a lot of sense between the disciplines if you if you take the time. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we've learned from each other in that way as well. Like, um, absolutely, the engineers would build a prototype uh, and we learn from that prototype and maybe the final product looks quite different. And the same thing happens when we work with uh, the researchers. Sometimes they have a certain theory and you need to build a quick prototype because you don't always have the data to evaluate this thing that you think will work right so you need to build this quick prototype you gather the data and then they discover all right now that we have the data 
mm, maybe we need to do things differently. So there is that kind of overlap. And I think you're right. The whole agile thing means there's appreciation for doing things quickly, throwing it away, learning, trying again. Yeah. And I mean, in the, as I understand in the machine learning and, and AI disciplines, what, what kind of gets lost in the, the pop science, pop tech kind of world is you need an outrageous amount of data to train the model and then kind of look at like, it was my hypothesis, you know, even remotely correct, right? Like that, that everybody kind of just thinks you turn on the AI and it becomes smart and takes over the world. You know, it, the reality is that, uh, all of it's based on, on training data. And if you don't have enough training data, it's going to tell you all kinds of, of wrong stuff. How do you do the back testing? Is that built into your prototyping methodology? Um, so, yeah, the data is probably the most important part of, of it all, right? Um, you need to make sure that you have the right samples of data. You need to make sure that you have the right labels. Uh, you need to make sure that um, you've engineered the right features to help predict the outcomes you care about. And it can be a very iterative process. You go back and forth. You try things. You look at the results. If it's not predictive, you go back to the drawing board. You try a few different things and you iterate. <coughs> and that's not too different from what engineers right, do right. either, right? Yeah. And the, that nature of, of predictive value, it just speaks to, hey, we already know what happened in the past, right? So can we feed it past data that led up to that? And can we kind of say, oh, look, we did predict something. You know, you, you can't just predict the future without having a hypothesis of what the prediction model might, might look like. And, uh, you know, another thing I hear, uh, partic particularly in, you know, big data sort of healthcare and, and financial and, and everything is, is people um, don't have an appreciation for that, you know, like 80% of the work at the beginning is, is just sort of really cumbersome ETL. <laughs> I don't know if that's been your experience, but you don't get to do the cool stuff until you ingest and normalize, you know, an amazing amount of data. And, and that, that engine is really the, the sort of unsexy early work necessary to make any useful models. Yeah, I think you've hit upon the dirty little secret of, of machine learning. There's a lot of doing exactly that, writing these ETL scripts, uh, setting up the data pipelines, uh, you know, Kicking off queries, you could wait hours, sometimes days, to actually get the training data to clean it up. Um, you run your model, things aren't quite as predictive as you hoped. You have to start again, right? Um, there's a lot of that. The, the good thing is, though, you, you do become familiar with your domain over time. And you do start to get more of a feeling of which variables matter. And you just need to make sure that those are easily and quickly accessible. Yeah, that's a good point. So let me shift gears a little bit um, off Mike. You mentioned that uh, you just made the, the move to uh, being remote and, and working distributed. And I, I don't know if that was, you know, sort of a new thing in the, in the company culture, uh, but you are still managing the team. And I wonder, you know, a, a lot of people are, are now in that position, both on the, the company side and on the employee side, where remote and distributed is really becoming um, a substantial option and, and a necessary option. So, you know, what's that been like and what, what has changed in the way you manage and lead and um, do things together with your team? So I would say it's still a little bit of a learning experience because I've only been doing this for about four months now. Um, 
Now, I was embedded with our team for quite a long time. So I, I know the company, I know the team, I know the systems, I know the people. Um, and what I still try and do is I try and um, head into the office for one week every month for some valuable face-to-face -face time. Um, there are challenges, uh, obviously, but to be perfectly honest, it's been less of an issue than I originally thought. So far, things seem to be working uh, pretty well. What are the, the key collaboration tools that you use? Like, does video play a big factor? The, the listeners can't see, but you and I are on video now, and I, I personally have found that I like to have video up for all my calls, that it makes a, a huge difference. So uh, what tools do you guys use to you know collaborate and you know sort of do the asynchronous and synchronous and all those things? Yeah, so the funny thing is I didn't really have to change any of the tools we were already using when I was based in the office because uh, even when I was in the office, um, you know, people have their headphones on, they listen to music, then the flow, they're doing their thing. And instead of just, uh, you know, tapping on their shoulder going, hey, I would chat them. You know, they may be sitting a few desks away from me, but I would still G-chat them, right? Um, so I, I do that still. And, you know, when we have conferences or one-on-ones and the like, we just use Google Hangouts. That's what we used to do in the office in any case. And that's what we do right now. So, you know, I'm remote, but I still see the guys. I chat with them the whole time. Um, we're in meetings the whole time. We have... You know, we have an agile process. Uh, so every morning we uh, do a quick stand-up for like 15 minutes. Everyone ducks into a conference room. I dial into the conference room. Sometimes people work from home um, in any case. Um, actually, that happens quite often. And, uh, you know, they dial in, same as I do, and uh, we chat. So I think things haven't changed that much, really. So you did mention some challenges or some some changes. What what are they then? Look, I, I love my commute. I walk downstairs from my bedroom. I pass through the kitchen. I grab a cup of coffee and I, you know, head on over to my study. That's great. Um, I would say I do miss the human interaction sometimes. So uh, what I've started doing is just popping out. You go to a coffee shop for a little bit. If I don't have a conference call coming up, I will sit there. I will, uh, you know, program a little bit. And if I see, well, in an hour's time, I have another conference call coming in, I just head on home. And yeah, I, that's and smart to, to think about, you know, how to, to change your environment. Um, I also wonder about, you know, you mentioned uh, an interesting thing about your neighborhood that you, you know, have started to find all kinds of remote people from, from different, um, you know, sort of companies and, and backgrounds. It's like, do you, do you think there's a, a culture growing up around certain areas? I, I've anecdotally seen that, that, you know, in fact, remote workers and, and knowledge workers are clustering in certain areas of the country. And I, that sounded like it was surprising, but I, the data shows that too. Yeah. So it was surprising to me because uh, I think I wasn't aware of it in New York. But then again, I wasn't actually based remotely when I was in New York. I was at the office. Um but presently, I'm based in Raleigh, uh, in North Carolina. And what I found is quite a few of my neighbors who do work for tech companies like IBM, Cisco, Red Hat, and, and Google and the like, they seem to be based uh, at home quite a lot of their time. 
Um, so, you know, we've been trading war stories and it's, it's interesting to, to see that this does appear to be a trend, at least in this area where I am right now. Any particular uh, themes that you hear coming up, you know, talking to the other uh, remote working class? You know, it seems to me some of them manage um, employees who are distributed like globally. Um, so even if they were to go into local office, a large part of the workforce are, in fact, not local. Um, I don't know if that is maybe a large part of the reason for it, but um, it kind of makes sense to me if a large part of your team, if you're managing 600 people and like 400 of them you know, are just distributed across the globe, that is perhaps re- less reason for you to be in your local office. So then that brings me to, I'll, I'll call it the last question since we're, we're getting close to time, but um, having discovered that, as you think about growing your company, you know, do you, do you think there are opportunities for, you know, expanding your workforce beyond, um, you know, what's available in New York then? Since now you know it's possible, have you, have you thought about going global? Well, there are some talks about um, having more of a global presence. Um, we currently do have quite a few offices around the, the U.S., um, most of them are like sales offices. Um, I think currently most of our tech is uh, in New York City. Um, but uh, there has certainly been some discussions in that direction. Interesting. Well, look forward to getting the updates on the stories uh, maybe next time. So, Vickis, thanks so much for joining us. It's really an interesting conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Lech. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.